This week, we're joined by Sven Schmidt from Germany. He is the CEO of Artie Minds. Uh, we're going to be covering an, an amazing number of topics. Uh, you know, one of the more interesting things that he talked about today was actually the STEAM scholarship that's available in Germany. And it, this allows startups to essentially have a little bit of running room in, in financing after, say, like their founders graduate from like a PhD program or something like that. So Schmidt actually used that in his uh, few years after uh, school to be able to form Artie Minds, which I thought was amazing. We also discuss connectivity, concerns about communication, as well as uh, privacy when it comes to being fully connected wirelessly or wired to the internet. We discuss um, about the future of the manufacturing floor and what Artie Minds is doing from a flexible automation standpoint to make sure that they can be one of the first to the market um, from a flexible automation to cover their customers' needs. We talk about teleoperation and how um, COVID has really changed the world and how we uh, do business from a support standpoint, uh, which has not really been talked about uh, so far. Yeah. Yes, Sven is a pretty amazing guy. You know, he's a he's a blend of high business acumen and also a true roboticist, understanding you know everything about robots from the lowest level of control loop all the way up to the the usability of the end user. And, I thought when he drew particular attention to the barriers to using like, you know, um, neural networks or something uh, for robotics, it's not quite as simple as I think a lot of people think. And, you know, there's going to be a lot more that's needed to get there. And he really talked about more data uh, needing to come off the robot in order to make neural networks and, and um, you know, any kind of AI actually work. So I thought that was an interesting part. Absolutely. Well, please give us a listen and uh, enjoy. Welcome to the Robot Thought Leaders Podcast with Zach Tompkinson and Chris Savoya. Bringing you in-depth interviews with industry experts driving change in the robot world. Ben, thank you for joining us. Yes. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, maybe uh, I could do a brief introduction. Perfect, yes. Cool, so today uh, we're joined by Sven from Artie Minds. He's the CEO uh, of his company. They're based out of Germany and he's gonna be talking to us about uh, not just his personal life and how he got into robotics as a roboticist for one of the, I would say, uh, more premier technology companies for robotics out there, but also how he grew Artie Minds into the powerhouse that it is today. So thank you very much for joining us today, Sven. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's uh, nice to be here. So I was born in Heidelberg in Germany nearly 40 years ago now. <laughs> we'll be turning 40 this year. And oh. uh, yeah, so I, I discovered my interest, of course, in, in technical stuff early on. I think like many people going into a technical career. So uh, playing with Lego as a child, Lego robots were also something I was very fancy about when I was uh, like, say, seven, eight years old. And um, so I discovered computer science um, at the end of my teenage years, about 15, 16 years old, not just playing computer, but programming. 
And uh, very rapidly, I, I got fond of uh, machines that interact physically with the world. So for me, always for programming, when I program, try to program some small computer games, stuff like that, sure. it was always a little bit boring to interact with this program through just a screen and a keyboard. And that was a very important motivator for me uh, to move towards uh, computer programs, basically, which interact with the world through sensors and actors. And so my wish to really do robotics as a career formed around you know, the end of high school. And uh, it's noted in my high school yearbook of my class that I wanted to become an entrepreneur in robotics. It wow. states it one sentence. So it was my aim from uh, from the graduation of my high school on. And so I, um, yeah, I basically choose computer science because I was always more interested in the software side of robotics in, in wow. information processing and not so much in the mechatronics and the mechanical engineering. And so I went to Karlsruhe, which was already back then, yeah, one of the big three robotics computer science universities in Germany together with uh, Munich and Aachen. And, and uh, yeah, so I became a, a heavy and undergraduate research assistant quite early in studies, very early on. This is now 18, 18 and a half years ago, in October wow, 2000. Cool. I started really programming a baritone. It was a baritone. We had a baritone there. Uh, and it's, it's now here actually in my office, but I cannot turn the camera, but the whole robot from back then, the service robot, it was given to us as a museum piece. As a baritone three-fingered hand with a forced torque sensor from DLR and the Amtec lightweight robot arm with seven joints was in 2002 that the Institute got this robotic system and then put it on a, on a torso and put a, a self-built mobile platform under it. And this robot, yeah, it's very ugly. So I, I wouldn't put it in the camera, but it has, had everything back then. It had 3D vision, an early Swiss Ranger uh, 2000 uh, 3D wow. camera awful data, really awful, but it was 3D, it was very, something very great back then, 2D, uh, 2D uh, stereo camera system, and of course a manipulator with multi-fingered, with strain sensors in the fingers, with a force torque sensor, 6D in the wrist, and a mobile platform with a laser sensor and some early slam, and so we could do for 10 years, I worked with this. So many robot. questions for you already. <laughs> Maybe we could ask you a couple, yeah. uh, if, you, yeah. if we can. So when you were first getting started in high school, were there programs like uh, for robotics in high school uh, in Germany? It, like I know in the United States, we have something called FIRST Robotics. Uh, and I don't know if those were around back then or if you were trying to figure this all out yourself. No, they exist now. I actually know someone in Karlsruhe who has, has pushed it to all the schools in the region, Some an entrepreneur, yeah. a very great robot school project. No, it didn't exist back then, but we had a good computer science class in the last two years of school which advanced me quite a lot from this meddling around at home. And I'm very grateful with this teacher. He, he put it nearly to university level. Really wow. algorithmic, we had a program in the exams on paper, very, very demanding and, and, and yeah, it built me to a better programmer before starting to study. What kind of hardware did you have? I mean, was it working with stepper motors and like simple things like that or? Uh, what kind of platforms? Oh, the, the robotics Arduino wasn't a thing then, the robotic, right? The robotics I started at the very end of high school with uh, Lego Mindstorms, actually. And then oh, when I got into university, nice. a goal to have this undergraduate job was to have really good hardware to work with. So that's why I, I went very quickly to this university side job um, to have good hardware. So be, before graduation, it was mostly programming without real robots was mm -hmm. a lot of programming, but that's what I wanted to leave behind. But there were not so many opportunities beyond the, the legal mindstorm. At least I was not able to find any. 
Hmm. Lego Mindstorm, another person. We've heard that before, and it's yeah. pretty amazing how many roboticists that uh, have been bred from Lego Mindstorm. Yeah, I still have it somewhere in my in my cupboard. <laughs> Do you have children, Sven? No. I was going to say that would be a good present for them, perhaps. Yeah, but. Sure, sure. <laughs> And uh, I'm sorry, what university did you say you went to in Germany? In Karlsruhe, here in Karlsruhe, the University of Karlsruhe Technical University. It's, today it's called Karlsruhe Institute of Technology. They rebranded themselves, I think, in 2007 or 8. But when I started, it was still called University. <laughs> and it's still the same stuff, basically. Very cool. Yeah, very good. And then you were talking about your first robot, and you mentioned so many keywords that I think we need to uh, go through again. So you said force torque sensor, you said slam. You said manipulator. Uh, I think you said seven degrees of freedom as well. Yeah. Yes, uh, yes, can you yes. take us through that a little bit more? Yeah. So basically, it was a full. It emerged from around 2002 to 2004 with the PhD students. We built this through our whole machine. It, it became a full service robot with basically from the ground a mobile platform with wheels with a laser scanner and coder so that it could um, make a map and drive around with everything on top then a torso with all the computers in it so it could really compute everything on board and then one arm attached to its shoulder uh, which was an Amtec lightweight robot uh, a very grandfather of lightweight robots uh, um, from the, the company Amtec was later bought by Schunk and um, it had seven degrees of freedom, or I still has it, but it doesn't move anymore. <laughs> and then yeah. of course, sensor at the wrist, like you have it today with robots, yeah, it looks yeah. right through this direction. And then a baritone with a three-finger three-finger gripper. So, and of course, a head with 2D and 3D cameras. So basically a lot of stuff already that today gets more and more used in industrial applications. Yeah. It was 18 years ago. Yeah. That's amazing. So it's it's, you said it was like, um, or basically right around 2000 that this was all taking place. Yeah, 2002, 2002, the most components arrived and then the Institute built it together and was quite pioneer work. Back then, not many people had such robots. Yep. Uh, it was very rare and so it was very blessed in the 2000s, although it's very ugly to make a lot of experiments. So because then my PhD later was in uh, probabilistic decision-making of this robot. I've always dreamed of AI and you couldn't use yeah. it. The word AI back then, it was, you know, AI winter. So you always had to call it differently, but that was it have autonomously acting robot that looks around what to do next, ask the human something, look for a chair, find the chair, grasp the chair, pull the chair, find the cup, pull up, uh, tear, yeah, take the cup to the human, gave it to the human, stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So it was very blessed. Are you, are you guys doing a lot of that type of like neural network, um, artificial intelligence stuff now? Yes, again, you can say, so we have an innovation lab now in RT Minds where we have also even PhD students and we have research projects in universities where we always continue to push the next end or next generation after that of technology. Sure. So that's, that's where we do a lot of machine and deep learning. In our current products, commercially on the market, it's still limited, but we are always sure. doing pre-development research. But you're thinking about the future. We're working, on it. We're working actively working on it. We, we, we have... We'll publish a paper on ICRA, it's accepted. So we will have a nice paper on ICRA now this June, which will, uh, where we will show some of these deep learning on, on more industrial tasks. Yeah. Very cool. I saw, um, so I don't know if you're, if you, if you know, Daryl Adams, um, he, he, he was uh, worked at UR and he left and he works at uh, Gideon Brothers now. They're out of Croatia. They're um, a 
mobile mobile robot company. I think we're going to actually have him on here at some point. Um, but he sent me a video of Covariant and the founder of Covariant and, and the name um, escapes me. My audio is not coming through, guys. Sorry. Yeah, it might sound like it's through the computer. Yeah, really. Uh, um, does that sound Maybe. better? Yeah, yeah, that sounds fine, I guess. Yeah. All right, because that okay. definitely is coming through the condenser. So, um, anyways. Um, yeah, so he sent me a video from the, the founder of Covariant, who is, um, was talking, I think it's a, um, it was a video released recently that they put out talking about artificial intelligence and, um, the, the whole premise of it was talking about the neural networks and, and how, and putting that into like everyday life, right? Obviously their focus is really in, um, automating like e-commerce and in that area of uh, like warehouse but you know looking at how you get this how you get robots into outside of even manufacturing but into more commercial applications um they really have to have deep learning right there's like if you're in a house you can't there's just too much variability the things change all the time you know you have to be able to like recognize what's going on and make a decision versus what we often see on the manufacturing floor as it's a simple logic loop that is only going to last for, you know, maybe 50 lines of code that can make decisions for, you know, what's going on, but it's a, you know, a few if then statements, right? It's not, it's not a neural network or, you know, artificial intelligence with deep learning, which obviously is going to come into play. So what applications have you guys seen um, as like the forefront? Cause I think it'll probably come into manufacturing first before it goes into commercial applications. So I'm just curious of what applications you guys are seeing as uh, areas that need to be, um, need deep learning. Yeah, so first of all, of course, um, the deep learning alone is it's a little bit limited if you don't have a structure a knowledge-based AI on top. And that was a, for, me, for me a long time criticism about the deep learning trend, especially for robotics, where you have often not a lot, lot of data, but yeah. very high dimensional problems. And uh, now the technology is finally coming to the place where these symbolic approaches emerge with the deep learning approaches. And that's also what we follow in our, in our lab. Um, Can you explain uh, I, I will, what is symbolic versus, hmm? uh, what do you mean by symbolic? Yeah, I mean that there's an explicit model-based representation of some parts of the problem, um, and quantified or also symbolic, and uh, um, that this explicit representation is there and it somehow yeah, it's coordinated with the neural network parts. For example, that you just have some parameters in a symbolic model that is learned by the neural network or that you have other approaches that uh, more directly link it together. That's actually what we follow. So my PhD you know, 10 years ago um, was uh, still very much uh, explicit symbolic AI with probabilistic processes. That was back then the way to do it. And it always lacked the flexibility that, that now uh, deep learning brings. But uh, pure uh, reinforcement or non-reinforcement based uh, deep learning without anything uh, symbolic uh, in it or model based in it is very weak if you have a very high dimension, very complex uh, structure problems and sure. not data. And so this is now coming together and the applications we see is of course, if you have very small lot sizes, 
basically types of auto configuration so that you get away from intuitive programming to some parts of self-programming offers still somewhat classical task with force or vision-based adaptation reflexes but also um, things like um, adapting to very complex uh, yeah, problems and surface treatment you know like uh, uh, grinding or polishing or other sure. other tasks where you also want to avoid then models um, of the workpiece or of the process. Um, so that's that's where um, the VC basic AI based approaches coming step by step into the manufacturing world. And, and we very strongly believe in the step by step and not doing one big, you know, yeah. uh, general AI approach and one big project and it can solve everything. It's, it's too many, it's too complicated. So doing step by step and that's what we follow. Interesting. Yeah. Can you expand more on the idea of not having enough data? That's I'm not sure that I've heard it like that before. And it seems like, you know, at least from looking at it from my side, that there's a ton of data out there, but maybe it's not enough data to do real, uh, you know, reinforcement learning or something. Um, so what kind of data would you look for in like an optimal? Uh, uh, very simple. If you, if you say you have one process in, a, in, in somewhere on a shop floor, yeah, where one robot and you want to solve something some assembly, some plugging something in or, or debarring a contour sure. or something. And you need some sensor-based adaptation, some, you know, the path has to be controlled, control parameters need to be something, you know, some strategy, um, how to control it, how to plan the path, stuff like that. Um, uh, if you do a ramp up, I mean, a thousand cycles is still quite a lot in a ramp up, yeah? A thousand data examples compared to some vision learning, it's a drop in the bucket. You learn with hundreds of thousands or millions often. And so, uh, of course, then you can say you can use transfer learning. You have similar different problems, yeah, that you can all, all combine into one, one learning bag, so to say. Use federated learning, all this kind of stuff. But it's right. not, well, not easy to orchestrate in practice. You, you don't have a, a 100 of the similar applications in the same company with mm -hmm. same system integrator or ramp up team that you just can pool. Yeah, it, it's not like with, for example, vision-based uh, learning as there are much higher obstacles to gather the data. And on the other hand, the dimensionality of the actual problems often are not so much lower than if you want to detect some speech or vision, some image or something. And so this is a, this is a big limitation, but uh, I'm very confident that current approaches that bring together prior knowledge and with the deep learning power uh, will overcome these challenges. Yeah. Yeah, Interesting. like, you know, one of the, I think one of the first applications that I saw was, it was probably 2017. And well, not to mention, I guess when I worked at Cognex, Viddy had come out or had just come out right after I had left. So it was really interesting to see the machine learning um, aspect um, within the kind of standard um, computer vision world and or, or or self um, uh, standalone uh, vision system. And what was interesting is a company out of Quebec called um, Omni Robotics. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, the uh, CEO there is uh, uh, Francois and he, he showed me what, they're, what they were targeting. And, and essentially his whole idea was saying that typically when you automate something, you look from a industrial application, you look at something as you know, very low mix, very high volume, right? And when when we look at the manufacturing floor, I think collaborative robots really filled a void where 
we said, okay, here's something that is maybe low mix, I'm sorry, high mix, low volume. And I think that there's like artificial intelligence in, in deep learning, you know, can really provide an area where it's extremely high mix, where it's everything is mixed and the volume is, you know, single piece, one piece. Um, and so it takes that kind of that top of top of the line of what, what you what you saw previously, you know, all the way down to a lot of one. And I think that that's really what's interesting as we as we pursue these. Um, so I don't know if you're seeing if, if you see similar similar path forward. Sounds like Sven is saying that uh, that's a bit of a problem right now. That we're not quite there yet. You know, that yeah. we need more data to train these low mix applications, and they almost need to be pre-trained. You know, from prior applications, like the you know, artificial intelligence needs to come in with some kind of existing knowledge to be able to have it work kind of the first time around. Is that correct, Sven? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, but again, then of course, if you can build some more powerful systems that can use a lot of prior knowledge from similar tasks, yeah, um, then it should be able to deduce, you know, uh, a solution for their current problem if it's not too dissimilar from the prior knowledge that solves it. And that's AI. I mean, it uses knowledge and learning and sensing together yeah to get to novel solutions yeah that's that's intelligence in, in my point of view and and exactly as Zach said um going towards lot size one yeah um I mean, even lot size 100 is often yeah. very low yeah for automation yeah. so uh, often i mean lots as one is in lots of 100 are nearly equivalent from this point of view there is a lot of potential but i also additionally i see the potential to do less mechanical engineering that's weird. We always say with RD mines that sensor-based robotics, yeah, with, with 2D or 3D vision cameras, laser scanners, uh, and, and force sensing enables uh, to be a little, little a lot less uh, uh, complex with the mechanical uh, um, structures, grippers, fixtures, environment. Um, the same thing that the again, general robot uh, trend also um, um, yeah, uh, orchestrates. And um, so I think AI can push that even further for, for complex problems. And um, I think this, these are the two main directions, smaller lot sizes and less complex uh, mechanical engineering, both together are flexibility, you know? There's a, the end result is flexibility. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about, a flexible automation, really flexible automation. Like the, yeah. So we can reconfigure itself and everything like that. And that, that needs these AI techniques you know, to, to really to become fruition in, in a broad way in a very successful way. When, you, uh, when your company is looking to sell software for robotics, do you look to particular applications um, or are you willing to entertain almost any application that might come across? Yeah, so, so where we have most experience and uh, the biggest USP are a lot of uh, assembly type applications with some fixed uh, um, work pieces, but some tolerances, but also especially flexible work pieces. Um, but also now more and more also different kinds of surface treatment, you know, like the barring, grinding, polishing, these kind of applications become more and more exciting. Where now the technology also from the tools and everything moves towards a broader usability, also in smaller lot sizes, but also complex handling. And laboratory, we have customers. Um, uh, so if it's manufacturing uh, in the broadest sense, uh, we have quite a lot of uh, applications of different types in the field running in production. Um, in logistics, we are less present. So, for example, a fulfillment e commerce is not something. 
if we focus on um, there are there are very focused solutions that are very powerful and has been a lot of movement in that market uh, in the past few years. So um, yeah, yeah tremendous amounts. We were talking about this last episode. The uh, amount of money that's going into the, that part of robotics is incredible. Um, some of the valuations of these companies uh, as they, you know, perhaps um, you know start to be publicly traded in some cases, or they're acquired by other companies. It's it's really incredible the amount of money that's going into e-commerce uh, market. Yeah. yeah, and you see also very different geographic, you know, focus in the U.S. There are a lot of very strong companies in this field. The manufacturing is more in Europe. There are more new players, where you also see general in the market the fulfillment. Uh, relative to manufacturing, there's a different relationship in the US and in Europe. Uh, and, and I thought this also plays, uh, I think, into everything. So, But I think it's fully okay that you, you focus more on the topics that are stronger in your own market, or even if you have, of course, customers overseas also. And I think yeah. that's fully okay. So can you tell us, you know, 2002, you're in school, you're, uh, you know, going to get your PhD, and you graduate, and you've do you find already minds right away? Like, how did how did your career transition into the company already minds? And you know, how did you find yourself coming to lead it? Like, how did that entire journey happen? Yeah, of course, very very importantly, at the beginning of the, my PhD, yeah, uh, around two thousand seven, I, I I learned to, to know a very very interesting. Uh, um, yeah, back then students, uh, which very quickly also became colleagues. Yeah, the Rainer and Gerhard, my two co-founders. So we worked for many years at the institute in a, in a very fruitful manner, and uh, we, I think we got to know each other and to to appreciate our strengths and of course a little bit weaknesses and find that we are very complementary. Although we, all, all computer scientists at the lab, uh, just from 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 our interests and so and so, Rainer did a really enormously great work during his PhD, which I, I, went, I saw it very early and he also later be, you know, got the George Ra PhD award, which was for many years the most prestigious young academics award in robotics in Europe. It's now discontinued, but for many years he got it at the end for his PhD. Um, it's a very great work on programming by demonstration, coupling it with motion planning and learning. And so to be able to very flexibly parameterize complex sensor-based robot programs. And so, I mean, uh, I, I, was, I was basically the closest one always looking at this and, and I saw the potential. And uh, so, I, as you know, I wanted to found a company when I was in high school already and also when I was a student and so yeah. it all came together, yeah. And so we talked and then at the end of our PhDs, um, I was already a postdoc then and when Rainer finished, so we everything was set up and in Germany, there's the founders scholarship, you can say, for the first year out of out of a, a research program, you get a personal scholarship for up to three founders uh, wow. to fund your first year. And you're allowed to stay at the university, have the offices, use the lab. And so, yeah, that's what we did in 2013. Can you talk yeah. a little bit more about that, actually? I'm, that's a really interesting uh, uh, comment or uh, um, yeah, it's, it's the best thing Germany has about founding. Yeah, it's many, Germany is weak in many aspects uh, for, for startups, also deep tech, but these exist founder scholarship is a very broad and very strong and very successful program. And I know a lot of young founders, nearly everyone founded yeah. from university goes through this program. Uh, there are two variants, actually, we took the smaller one to be a little bit more agile. 
um, but it finds you the smaller one one year and the bigger one up to two years um, for three people, bigger one, I think up to four people. The founders basically get uh, yeah, monthly money, but the, 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 the government doesn't take any equity or something. So after, after the scholarship has started, you allow them to found your company as a, as a, as a corporation. And, and so you do your stuff, but still paid and have your office at the university and have some mentors and, and stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's a, a super great program and it's not very expensive for the state because it's just, you know, some, some money like a PhD student, something a little bit less. Do you apply? For, yes, yes, uh, yes, yes. You have to write. You have to have to write a proposal, like for a research grant. Yeah, write a proposal. Show your technology. Show your your business case. Show your USP. Everything, and then I think fifty percent get funded or so. So it's okay. Incredible. Yeah. And so do and they so, grant you like how much do they typically grant? Is it usually like fifty fifty thousand, or is it more like? you know, 300,000. I'm sure it depends, but... Um, yeah, back then, no, 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 it's very, very fixed. Uh, back then, the small one was 100,000 for all the three together. I think it's a little bit more towards mm -hmm. 150. You get a little bit money for hardware or buying software. Now, it was, was not so much. Back then, it was just peanuts. And the bigger program is like 300,000 or something like that. So, but wow. in the bigger program, you, you often have to give some equity to the university. Sure. So that's also a drawback of the bigger one. It's also more for deep tech. And the smaller one is always without any, you know, it's just given to you. Um, but I think it's nonetheless a good return of investment for, for yeah. the government because, I mean, very early stage funding, especially of more deep tech topics, is very weak in Germany. So you, you need to get somewhere to get some revenue, to bootstrap further, or to, to have something to show to investors. That, that and so then do they allow you to continue to, like, work at... at um... University. At the university as well and, and you know so you have a salary uh, yeah of course you can have a little bit side job additionally teach a little bit but usually the scholarship is okay if you don't want to no, save a lot you, of money no. and of course then we also got into a local accelerator which was just getting started back then we were in the first batch yeah and they're now very big yeah i'm also now in the board of this uh this environment and so on, and they have developed so great the cyber lab in Karlsruhe, it's gone really far uh, since 2013, but also helped to get more from the commercial side, yeah, and 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 so, yeah, so we were able to develop our, our commercial product, so we really developed the commercial product in, in this framework, and and so then uh, uh, we, we were, in the beginning of 2015, we were able to sell the first software, you know, it was very important from this, you know, sitting still at the university, uh, building this product in the scholarship and the mentoring, sell the first software, um, having some uh, integrator program, the robot with it. And so this, this helped us then to get a little bit more government, not grant, but in this case, it's more like a, a government uh, credit, a small, still very, quite small. Um, and so then from then we had two years until we did our equity round. We did an equity round four years ago at the beginning of 2017. But the good thing was we had already quite some customers to show, already some, some early team and something. So because in Germany, it's very difficult to get, let's say, a good setup on just an idea. You know, it's very, and in Germany, you have to, to do this more like this out of the university and, and with these supports and we had to develop quite some software you know to have a commercially viable 
MVP basically. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it was very, I'm very grateful for, for this, although there are, of course, a lot of drawbacks in Germany considering uh, good capital options. But yeah, then, then we go to a point where we got a, a very, very great uh, yeah, family office slash business angel, basically. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's One more time for our listeners, the name of that program in Germany is called? Exist Gründerstipendium and Exist Forschungstransfer, it's basically exist founder scholarship and exist research transfer. This is basically, but they are, it's part of the same program, just two different options. Yeah. Very cool. So that, that'll let you run for a few years. And then you said you had equity round there. Uh, did you have employees when you had the equity round or was it still the founders? No, 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 as I said, when we sold the first software, we were able to, to, to raise, raise also a little bit government supported and a small credit program, some kind of basic credit line. Which supported us for yeah for two more years with also revenue some software revenue and so to grow a little bit and then so we we felt ready that we could go to a real equity round uh, this was then even a little bit later and that was beginning 2017 that we closed it and we, we won quite a lot of awards uh, in the year 2015-16 which helped <laughs> also basically got us to know to this person uh, to mr semler uh, um, and uh, so he will, he's our basically main investor and uh, we're very great together because he, he's also very long-term oriented and is personally you know, involved. And I think for a company like us, this is a very, very good setup to, uh, to have someone you know, which basically stands behind with their, their own uh, yeah, fund. Yeah? And, uh, and so uh, can support also to a, to a little bit more difficult times. Yeah? And, uh, and get steadiness because I mean, this is in our uh, domain. If you look around, of course, we've talked also with a lot of investors over the years, especially when the manufacturing oriented robotics, yeah, it has a certain pace, the market it has a certain complexity. And if you look at the stories that exist in this market, it's not like you sell a CRM software or something. Yeah, it's, it's there are some parameters are very different and, and you're, you have to understand it. and. And then work with it, and, and if oh, everything exists, I think you can build a, a nice production story. But it will not be YouTube, where you will have a billion users in a year or something like that. Yeah, so you then can grow. Yeah, and if there's a boom time, you grow fast, like 2017-18. If there's industry is not so good in 1920, you take a little bit of breath, and now the boom is starting again. We can feel it. So um, yeah, it, it has to fit. And so far, we were very lucky uh, to, to have a very, very great fit, and I'm very gladful for that. And um, but we were always very careful to, to look at how this market works and, and what works there. And, and there are sometimes a very big misunderstandings, investors moving into this market without prior experience. And they have, very, they have um, expectations that cannot be met in that market. Um, but, they, but they also don't see the benefits or some, some advantages also this market has. And um, you have to be very careful about that as a founder to have a good match there. And so far we had an absolutely great match and I'm very, very grateful for Mr. Zemler to be a part of our team. And that's not all, always feels also in the board. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, so far I'm very, very happy with that. I'm glad that we were very lucky to make the right decisions but also had some, of course, uh, yeah, chance luck, <laughs> very clearly. Definitely. So what was um, what was your first customer 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about who your first customer was or? It was a system um, integrator in Spain, a system integrator in Spain using software for a project. And like usually with new stuff, you don't sell the first in Germany. But today, uh, the most host is from Germany at the moment. So this has changed a lot after you are a little longer in the market for a couple of years, you get accepted. And uh, of course, we have also uh, US is, is still also relevant for us, uh, Western Europe in general. Um, but yeah, it started in Spain and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so um, what was uh, what was the customer's application? What were they looking to do? It was some aerospace, some assembly in aerospace. So I was, uh, I don't remember the more details, but something like that. Yeah. Very cool. So what are your areas of focus now? Um, where, where are you focused here um, in 2021 and, and maybe into the next, you know, say 24 months uh, as it pertains to your business and, and what you think customers, customers need um, from a solutions aspect? Yeah, so we, of course, our first product uh, and still the main one is the robot programming suite where you can program with the graphical interface, especially for so force or vision based applications, but also if you have complex uh, offline motion planning. And uh, we added a product uh, learning and uh, analytics for robots. Um, uh, yeah, around two years ago, but of slow introduction with the beta phase at some existing RPS customers. It's still at the moment not so much learning, There's still already a lot of analytics, but learning is coming now. And this is a tool which gathers data from the robot. So with our programming tool, we generate robot code. And for the LRR, you can embed code that sends label data uh, out to an edge PC or something where our LAR runs uh, with a database. And then we can do a lot of analytics, uh, really process centric, not just machine centric, but process centric analytics. Uh, and optimization also of the process of the robot application. And so this is now taking up pace. So we have expanded basically product from planning, programming, ramp up towards more also monitoring, optimization, transfer of knowledge. And so we have broadened with the LAR and now we are pursuing a lot more activities into this direction to broaden basically our scope as a software that sits on top, the flexible automation. So that's interfacing with the PLC, uh, doing a lot of fancy stuff at the moment we cannot yet talk about with great, uh, very, very prominent partners. We have, for example, with uh, something I can talk about with Siemens, we are uh, an OM component in Process Simulate. We're integrated into the planning process of all factory lines, looking now a lot of also to, 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 to yeah, better connection integration with digital engineering. And, and so we see a lot of integration because what we see in general, I mean, what the customers have the problem with is, I mean, there is, you know, the hardware so much different hardware often if you have a little bit more complex application and then you have a software system running the shop floor and everything. And so in the end, it's always a complexity and integration problem yeah? in, in some way, if you have a little bit more challenging application. Sure. Um, and so we focus it on a lot of, of, of tackling and this in a more holistic manner. So we've grown beyond just robot programming really tackling, talking all the customer is burdened with when they have this, oh yeah, automate this step or make this line more efficient. Do you find that people are looking not just for the analytics and the data itself, but also to try and help visualize the data? Like I'm not saying to tell them, you know, and, and to predict things, right? Which I think is still coming, but you know, in terms of actually visualizing things in the dashboards or something like that, do people ask for that as well? or they tend to do that themselves? 
No, of course. I mean, we have it in the early incarnations of this LAR, or mainly dashboard functions of different kinds, uh, 3D visualization in the browser of certain segments of the operation where you compare, can compare a hundred different runs uh, numerically and visually, and, and we have all different kinds of, of, of visualization options. And of course, then on top, then automatic computations of proposals, how to improve the task, yeah, um, trend prognosis. This is a combination of, of simple or fancy visualization and, and more complex calculation. And yeah, people are moving there. They see if they use sensors in tasks, they need some way to manage it and to tame it. <laughs> and that's often not so easy if you don't really understand what's happening there. Yeah, I see a lot of people ask for, you know, predictive maintenance, but then uh, it may be tough to realize that right now. And so they kind of need to settle on visualizing the data at the very least, you know, and that's kind of one of the big things that I see, uh, you know, moving forward in the industry right now as well. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, with all the sensor data that you have um, coming out of your system, that if you label it and present it in a way that's digestible by the end yeah, it's really interesting. Are there um, are there applications that you see that are new this year, maybe since COVID? And I think social distancing is a is one that I think everyone always brings up. But to be fair, I think that that might not that's probably not going to last for for too long. Um, once the vaccine is out, I think that there's going to be a little bit less need for social distancing, obviously for potential future pandemics. I just don't know if that's going to last. Are there other applications that you're seeing now people pursue because of COVID um, that were not really looked at before? Or maybe it's an industry that's looking at something that was not looking pre-COVID. So application or industry that you're seeing um, change? I would pick a third option, ways to work. So we really remote, remote, really even programming, remote uh, ramp up support, uh, remote uh, maintenance support. Uh, people realize that you, if you have developed uh, an application in Germany and ship it to Korea, um, probably you could save the engineer flying there and helping the people on site. Yeah. You can sit in the office or at home and, and help them inside through remote tools. I think like what we do right now, these remote tools uh, is something where people realize uh, this could be an option for, for a lot of um, yeah engineering uh, travel reduction, uh, something like that. Um, that's what very we interesting. Work what we immediately felt when we have customers working, where we yeah, explored and are still exploring uh, options improvements. Um, applications per se, not so much. I mean, what of course is absolutely accelerating is the e-mobility, the, the electric car and all the components and manufacturing steps that, that come with it. And that is now for us the biggest growth option, definitely. So because there is a lot of new application types that you know, they want, they get now to the numbers, but automation uh, gets <laughs> viable. And, and so there's a lot of applications that, that have not really a 
uh, basically proven, yeah, proven perhaps a little bit, but saturated way of doing it. And that's always an opportunity to come with it with more lean, uh, novel approaches in, in a broader scale. And, and so that's what we see as the biggest opportunity for us emerging from COVID is actually really the, the much faster switch, especially in Europe, uh, to from the combustion engine to the yeah, battery electric usually or hybrid electric car. And there's a huge movement now in the industry. As in the last six to nine months, it, it's the big companies have really changed how they work. They can be Volkswagen and Volvo, they've all come out with pledges. Yeah, the big tier one suppliers also, they, they, there's a different momentum, there's a different dynamic, there's a different way to tackle things. There's really this wake up call in industry that was not yet present in 2019, where there was always automotive crisis has really been given through COVID, yeah, and it's very nice to see and yeah, it's- uh, Why is that? Yeah, I think there, there are factors. One was that uh, during this crisis also, especially the German government put even larger um, yeah, subsidies on buying electric cars for consumers. And, but also additionally, it seemed that the acceptance for years of Tesla is cool and Tesla here and there and some others already got to a critical level of acceptance when these subsidies really then helped to lift it off to a really revel, a relevant level. And if you look at the numbers of electric cars month by month sold last year in Germany, especially, but also in some other European countries, you see the revolution starting and then everyone came, yeah, okay, we now switch Volkswagen very big, but also others. And, and this has this, this fear of missing out effect and this, this group dynamic and everything. Of course, there are also some more objective functions <laughs> and this moved this industry. So yeah. the first time since uh, we deal with the automotive industry, it feels really dynamic. At the moment. I think it's pretty amazing to hear the Volkswagen CEO back it so strongly as well. I mean, Volkswagen for a time they passed Toyota as the largest uh, car company in the world. Uh, I've been proudly driving Volkswagen for a while. I love my Passat, and uh, you know it's one of those things where um, I think him coming out and backing the EV move really helped out quite a bit. Do you yeah, a lot of factors, but it was accelerated definitely by different COVID developments also. Yeah. Yeah. Would you also do you think that the kind of the craziness of maybe the U.S. stock market and the Tesla share price? I don't know. I think what it, what did it do, Chris? You know more than I do on that, but it's probably five x what it was, you know, from a year ago. And so I think that that probably all that might have caught the eye of some of these other car makers to say, hey, look, we really, you know, if Tesla is doing this, like we we need to go after this market as well. More like twenty x. From like a year and a quarter ago. There yeah. you go. That's right. That there. So, you know, yeah, I think that, that probably caught the eye from a you know a CFO standpoint. <laughs> yes, certainly. I mean, that of course they got everyone else got afraid that Tesla can raise so much capital. You know, just you know give a lot. They had this a little a bit, theory, a little bit more stock, really? five billion. A little bit more stocks, five billion. A little bit. They had this. I don't. I read it somewhere. This instrument where they could. Uh, flexibly uh, make a little bit, uh, give a little bit more stocks uh, to 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 the to the market, yeah, and and I mean if you can just do a little bit, have five billion, and then build a big plant or two, yeah. Of course, everyone else gets afraid and takes you now really seriously. And uh, I, I think basically the Robin Hood traders also accelerated the switch to uh, EVs. I right. can definitely say that. As I said, I think there are many factors. Uh, last year, but the, many of them were really at the beginning caused by COVID. 
uh, or the, to get the causal chain to the root. Uh, COVID is the, the root, but some other aspects, of course, were like, okay, uh, some, some acceptance has built over the last five years. So it, it came together perfectly in that sense, as yeah. uh, terrible as this was for not just a lot of people in health-wise and other, but also for the economies of a lot of segments. I think the car industry got a renewal, a re re renewal uh, uh, through this uh, process, yeah. So I want to jump back to one of the things you mentioned earlier. We touched on the idea of remote connectivity a lot and how that was really the big catalyst or one of the big changes in automation coming out of COVID. Do you think that teleoperation is like considered to be part of that where, you know, maybe you're not just passively seeing data on the robot, maybe you're not just like logging into it, maybe you're actively controlling it in some ways. Do you see that as something that's come about as well? Is that something that Minds is looking into? Um, or maybe not so much. It depends on the application on a, on a more classical line on the shop floor where you have a lot more than 100, <laughs> lot size 100. Uh, I see it more like there is someone on the ground, but they need very close support from a much better expert. Um, even if everything is intuitive, you know, there's, you always need some knowledge. Yeah, this is a complicated thing, a shop floor. And uh, that's where I see more like this, this kind of stuff. Uh, there are some applications, um, hazardous materials in, in chemical industry and on some other stuff where uh, teleoperation can now become uh, feasible with new technology that was too expensive before, where you just use it for nuclear or something for, for very few operations, where you have uh, um, sensor and intelligence support in teleoperation. No, but basically uh, the, the local robot does some control, sensor-based control, emotion planning, uh, um, and you, the teleoperator, do only coarse-grained supervision. Uh, and then you have, of course, a very good complementary system of the, the local system with a fast control loop where there's also no problem in the connection uh, ruptures, yeah, uh, the connection loss. Uh, the, the, the local autonomy of the system can, can, can capture, uh, yeah, uh, capture everything. But, but you do the more high-level intelligence for very fast. You need a lot of flexibility and very different options that we cannot yet model with AI. But me personally, I would always see it as a transitional phase, depends maybe a 10 year or 15 year transitional period. Uh, at some point uh, in these applications, the, the, the remote human should be able to be uh, replaced by a more intelligence officer. Yeah. Do you yeah, think that ultimately there'll be like, yeah. like the Everyone talks economy about will be just completely different in the sense that you'll have people working from everywhere in 20 years from now and it, and it will, or, or, or maybe, you know, you might be a little bit more localized. Maybe if you're a company that really relies heavily on, you know, German infrastructure, that you'll have, you know, manufacturing facility in Germany, your headquarters in Germany, everything will be local, but then you'll have when those people are sleeping, instead of running shifts through the night, you might have teleoperation coming from the other end of the globe so that you can, um, you know, they can be off hours by eight hours and, and work through the night? It's a very good question. Of course, on one point, you have to really make sure that these connections are very, very stable, as you have a very good redundancy. Maybe the, the satellite internet systems, if there are several of them together with some uh, cables, you know, like uh, uh, fiber optic um, together will make this happen. 
Um, yeah, I think this, this scenario would definitely take some time. Yeah. I think more like, you know, reduction of business travel. I mean, that's more now the more short and midterm scenario and not just for conferences or for, for sales meetings, but also for this, that's what I mean. It's also expanding to really uh, site support, yeah? Uh, because, I mean, that's very expensive, takes a lot of time in the people. I mean, imagine you can do site support remotely in three continents. You can probably do the three times the volume as if you have to, to, to fly by the aeroplane to each of these sites. So um, I, I think the, this is now the short and midterm trend. I think the other things you mentioned could be, I haven't thought about this yet, I have to admit. So uh, I, I couldn't make a prediction. Yeah, that's all right. I, I think another cool thing could be if you do that where you can connect with somebody you can really get the expert within that, whether that's that industry, that product, that solution, whatever that may be, that is very specific. You could pull in that individual wherever they are in the globe um, versus now, I think we're often constrained by who's the most, who's the most local person. Yeah, sure. Of course, that's a very big part of our offering also to the big companies, although for most, it's still a little bit perspective from a strategic point of view is that you develop a process at one expert lab. And then because it's mostly in software, yeah, although it's odd know-how and it's very easy to understand for someone else and transfer it, that you transfer it, you know, basically the main process now through software. So that was always our idea, even far before COVID. Yeah? So that's exactly what you, what what you say that that they are basically that you are not so locally bound by having this expert knowledge, experience, know-how you could say about certain processes, and that the digitizing it basically. And we should always be careful, man. It's also software, but it, the idea is to digitize processes. Yeah, and I mean digitize applications and then of course they still need the physical robot yeah at, at some point in the sensor and the, the environment but but the engineering is uh, a lot of the engineering is digitized and thus it's more transferable and, yeah. uh, and this makes it more permeable throughout the world throughout an organization so, so we often say that like germany and europe can be you know years ahead of where the u.s is from like a cutting edge standpoint where are your manufacturers and customers what is their feeling when it comes to security of connectivity yeah, yeah. so it depends on probably on the size of the company how much redundancy they can pay for um so i know that the smaller ones are very wary about it the bigger ones yeah, they do a lot of lengths uh, to secure it but always still they have things like on-premise cloud and not just the private cloud of the corporation because of stuff like that um, I, I think connectivity is a big issue, and I um, mean, we're always talking about 5G now, um, mm. but I don't see just 5G. I mean, one infrastructure, you need more redundancy of different types, like Starlink, like still having fiber to your main factories, yeah, um, fiber optic. And so, yeah, I'm not a total expert at the current state of these networking aspects, but but I see that always, I mean, some, some yeah, some uh, entrepreneurs or well, we always have the question of like connecting the connecting the robot to the internet, and you know, should every robot be connected to the internet, or you know, is there a fear of like cybersecurity around connecting um, your robot or other pieces of equipment to the internet? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have some large customers, some of our large customers, you have a, not only a fully uh, disconnected network for production and, and office and engineering on the other hand, but also the laptops are always so configured that you cannot be in both at the same time. So everything is built by their local IT, that there is no way that the production network which exists yeah, is connected to the internet. So. Uh, and not even to the internet indirectly. So because, I mean, we just saw these exchange hacks and so on, and it's terrible. I know some, some other entrepreneurs who run exchange and they got hacked and had to write all their customers. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, we, we, are, we are secure. We, we <laughs> give a lot of effort, yeah. Very, 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 very bad things. And of course they, they give a bad light. So yeah, definitely there's a, a big fear. Um, should they be connected? I think at one point, yes, but I believe at the moment, uh, Basically, the, the software, I don't know, technology, the vendors, the ecosystem is not there yet. It, it, it exchange hacks and stuff like that. They show it over and over again. And of course, you cannot secure against everything. I mean, on the political stage in the, in the Middle East, there have been hacks, uranium facilities and stuff like that, which are really okay. Yeah, I mean, that's something else entirely. But, you know, if, if some automatic tool can hack 100,000 companies or something like that, and if they will hack 100,000 shop floors and extortion them, it, yeah. yeah, this has to be solved. And this cannot be solved for our community. This has nothing to do with robotics, uh, no yeah. hardware or software player. This is something to be solved by Microsoft or, or by vendor or Amazon or whoever is, is responsible there, some, some Linux vendors. Um, yeah, so. I think so it sounds like there's the technology the of it, and then there's <laughs> actual mindshare, right? There's the, the there's the actual barrier to being hacked, and there's uh, the technology side of it, and then there's just getting people to want to connect to the internet because they see those perceived threats, whether they're real threats or really just fictitious. You know, uh, we talked to someone earlier. Uh, his name was Rob Goldias from Hyrobotics, and his entire company's um proposition was around being connected and so it was really interesting because like we see a lot that people don't want to connect their robots he basically said well no it doesn't matter because we sell a connected package so people know exactly what they're getting when they're signing up for this and there's no false expectation so it allows us to not even have to worry about that connectivity yeah, I think it depends on the size of the company and the culture of the company, of course. I mean, there are, of course, some smaller companies who will say, I, mean, I have to be stay competitive no matter what. And, and I, 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 yeah, I have to make a compromise anyways. Yeah? So I, I have to do it that way nonetheless. But there are some bigger ones who say we can, we can have all the hassle of fully disconnected networks and taking absolutely sure with very, very yeah, pervasive procedures Keep it always that way and it's worth the price and, and we can yeah. bear the additional effort and there are a lot of them yeah the big ones and from our point of view at the moment the bigger companies are the most interesting market and um so so for our we have also smaller companies and it works with our product but um yeah um and so i think it will it it will it will say a very relevant topic for the years to come yeah let's see how it but if there's always something happening like this exchange hack yeah now this year um, and it doesn't shed good light it's not just a perceived this is a real threat yeah if people can go there they can be in the network and they can hack from there then if it's connected they can hack onto the robot it's, it's not just a perceived threat and it's things like that repeatedly happen on scale 
and I've, I've heard of some others, you know, with regards to connectivity where they will have a complete air gap on critical parts of the system. For example, like their safety system might be completely disconnected and like running, you know, autonomously, right? So that they can always ensure that their safety system at least will be uh, disconnected from the internet, but then they connect maybe their their data stream or something to be able to read data off the airport, uh, off the airport, off the robot or something like that. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's why we always designed our products from the beginning to be locally installed primarily. Even the LAR, it's basically a web-based cloud technology from where you have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, people use it on the HPC, yeah? That's how they use it. And, and uh, we always developed it that way because we knew we would sell works a bit only <laughs> if it was a requirement for the robot to be connected to the cloud, at least to the customers we work with, yeah? There are certainly some who do it, but uh, it's much less. And yeah, we'll see how it goes. Of course, um, uh, it has also huge advantages if you can use the cloud, but it has to be secure. It's the most sure. important everything. So Zach, I was wondering if we could transition to uh, business management and metrics. If you want to go on that topic? Yeah, I mean, you know, so a fun question we just we like to ask is every CEO that we've interviewed has a kind of a different answer. Um, you know, I think the easy answer is always like a revenue based. But are there are there any metrics like you made comments of 20? 2017, or sorry, yeah, 2017, 2018 being very strong, 2019, 2020, it's a little bit weaker, but you really feel the robot industry and manufacturing industry coming back very strong from a spending perspective. Um, we feel the same way, um, but what do you use as metrics to measure whether it's what's going to be successful and, and when it's going to happen? And the healthier business. And the overall healthier business, yep. Of course, every area needs to have their own KPIs, uh, metrics, yeah, of course, in marketing, you can see how many are often are we here in German newsletters or in the top 10 most clicked, yeah, <laughs> things like that, or even the top most clicked or something like that. Uh, you have a lot of, of course, in marketing today options that measure yeah, what people really put their eyeballs on. And it's sales, of course, I mean, it's uh, other typical parameters of the sales funnel. But of course, uh, we are also working a lot with strategically with customers. And then of course, you cannot put everything in a metric. There are discrete jumps, yeah, that you, you cannot uh, anticipate in a continuous manner. It's not in a linear manner, but something now they decided that it's will be spread. Yeah, and so suddenly there's a big order coming in, yeah, from, from a much lower uh, previous, uh, basically, development line. And, um, uh, but also, of course, uh, things like, you know, pre-development yeah, and research yeah, so to, to, to look there, you know, um, how much new topics are worked on. So we have also metrics there. So I think it's, it's very important, of course, as you said, I mean, cash is king. Yeah? You need cash tomorrow and you need cash in five years and much more in 10 years. Yeah? So, of course, but everything else is a derivative in, in the end or leading towards that. Um, but of course, uh, that in 10 years, you have a lot more and sufficiently enough. I mean, you need a lot of different KPIs in different areas, also how you, you build the leadership, the people. And so we have a, a whole setup there that we always also discussed with uh, our Bayrat board. It's a mixture between an American board and an advisory board. And uh, so, so we try to, 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 to make it a broad, a little bit broad because really it's, 
it's a complicated field, a complicated market, and just focusing on two or three numbers that are not that there's good cash and enough cash, uh, it would be too narrow. Uh, the, you, lose, you, you lose a grander game and you, you need in this um, industry, how it develops at the moment, um, what we do in a very yeah, sophisticated plan of where you move, yeah, what you develop, where you go with customers. Of course, what's very important is also customer feedback, yeah. But also there, we have some quantitative service we do with customers where you yep. can where how, how content are they and what features do they want the most next. But also because it's, it's such a complicated topic, Robert, we also do something like two days workshop, especially with the power users of our large customers. And sure. then our CTO personally works with them and you cannot put that so well in the metric, you know? Yeah. And I think balancing something like, you know, hard numbers that you, you really have to live up to with, with, with a more networked or interwoven look onto the big picture and the big strategy and, sure. and, and making this in a well-balanced way. I think this is, a, this, is, this is a way I believe to do it is a big, yeah, it's a challenge to do this well. And it's a very, very exciting well. challenge. I like this very much to always learn there and, and always try to make this better. Yeah, you can look at the numbers, but especially, you know, as a smaller company or as a startup company, things do not come continuous. And I thought that was a very interesting, very engineering way to put it, you know, that it's not continuous. Things come discreetly at times. Sometimes a big order comes and you need to be ready for that when it comes uh, as well. And also from an engineering point of view and how technical your company is, the reinvestment back to R&D is an important thing to take note of, whether it's put up there via number or you know something that is more of a feeling and a directional strategy. Uh, that's a very good point as well. Thank you. So, are there any um, any books that um, that you have read that have inspired you and that have uh, I'm you know I think a common topic for all all CEOs is that you know, reading, a, I don't know, hundred books or whatever uh, is one of the most important things, but what, uh, what books have inspired you? Are there any ones that you can share? And how do you stay so, sharp? I would so much say to inspire, but I think Founder's Dilemma from Noah Wasserman, which I read a little bit before founding is essential that you don't make some of the very costly and uh, very strategic mistakes. At the beginning, things like the team, things like vesting, equity uh, distribution, Things like, I mean, getting some idea about different opportunities or options with the trajectory of funding, financing fits a little bit to what I said earlier. Uh, I read this very intensively, uh, quite a little bit, some months before founding. Somehow I stumbled upon it and it was extremely helpful. And I would always say every founder should read this before really making incorporation or really starting a couple of months, not too much before, so that it's still fresh and, and under, really trying to understand what it tells you because I think everything it said in that book is spot on and these are exactly the, the mistakes that you cannot fix anymore. If you make any mistakes or these the most discussed in that book, you cannot fix later again. So it will be like you waste the opportunity of a lifetime when you make these mistakes unfixable so it doesn't inspire it's very dry in many senses but i think it's very true of course i mean there are books like hard thing about hard things that show you that the emotional roller coasters and stuff like that even companies that are in a way from revenue have huge numbers and huge names founded uh, they all feel the same it's good in that i'm a little bit careful about other stuff in this direction because the point is that, that the markets are very different 
And what I also try to say that the robotics, it's been manufacturing robotics market, doesn't matter software or hardware, is very different from trying to sell customer relationship management SaaS. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, there are very different things happening and very different opportunities, but risks also very different. And um, I experienced a little bit to be drawn at some points a little bit in the wrong direction by reading too many books of domains which have very important dissimilarities to our domain. And of course, we were lucky it didn't go too much in, in the wrong directions, but there were some, some mistakes we made. So um, it's very People difficult to say, to, to under, you always underestimate these differences of industry yeah. when you just read, because most books come from a certain types of industries, certain B2B or even B2C or platform markets, which are very different. Um, but of course, they always have also good messages in it that are universal. That, that yeah. So you have to be a little bit careful, but you should read around. I read a lot of blogs or articles and things like Medium or or some founders, uh, CB Insights or or some CEOs. The fifty six uh, biggest mistakes from I think it's sure. CB Insights founder. It's always in my bookmarks. I reread it every uh, six months or something. Yeah? It's it's more like these short items where I find myself best, which are quite industry agnostic. There are some things quite industry agnostic. And I mean, I'm in kind of say an software entrepreneur group here in Karlsruhe, most much more experienced, older companies. Uh, that is extremely helpful. Every month we meet to some topic and you, you can mirror, okay, um, some are very similar to ours in the target industry and, and the sure. type of business. So this helps me a lot. So I can only uh, propose everyone who has a chance in their region, go to try to get in a circle like that. It helps you a lot to ground yourself. Okay, I'm not seeing ghosts. This is normal. Yeah, uh, so something like that helps absolutely. So I would say this is actually the most continuous and still to this day thing in this direction that I like now since many years. But at the beginning, some books are often uh, uh, obligatory. There, yeah, you have to have to read some of the. Yeah, read them. It's a great point, though. You almost need to watch out for the confirmation bias uh, that exists with all of these, like, you know, platform books or like, you know, industry books that look out across an industry that may be very different than ours. Uh, and I feel like people always reach to find the similarities, but they aren't judicious enough to reject, you know, the dissimilarities. And so it's like you have to read the books and you have to know them. But you also have to sit back and say, hey, that doesn't work for us for a lot of reasons. And it's interesting if you ever get in a situation to like, you know, talk to one of those people that write those books. Uh, sometimes you find that, uh, you know, they can't answer the questions that are specific to you. You know, you're like, well, yeah, this works. But hey, my industry sells through channel. So like, I don't think that this would work, you know, and. All of a sudden, like a lot of that ethos breaks down completely. Well, I think an interesting one that comes up all the time is like the software as a service model is very popular in software. And obviously in robotics, there is a lot of software, but there's also a lot of hardware. What is your opinion when it comes to the software as a service model? You know, will that make its way into robotics? Are you guys doing that yourselves? Um, and, you know, where do you see that going over the next few years? Okay, I would uh, distinguish between uh, SaaS really in a complete manner and uh, um, basically a subscription uh, model from a financial point of view, but with locally installed software where the customer has still control over which version to use. Because the latter one we are actually proceeding on right now, we're moving more and more into that. So really having basically rental and um, 
and service fees, uh, recurring revenue, uh, but uh, with on-site installation. So because as I said, this is internet connection and also people feel uh, to have the power over their software installations. And so, so that's, that's not true SaaS, but from an economic point of view, it's like SaaS. And um, um, yeah, there are there. You have to tweak it a little bit <laughs> for this industry to work with their yeah, procurement um, methods. And and uh, um, but it's slowly getting to working. Yeah. So it's, I, I, I believe all software will go to rental. Yeah. All software in all domains, software will go to rental. Um, not necessarily SaaS, but to rental um, because it's becoming more and more complex and you need the updates because everything is more interconnected. You cannot have a version that's four years old exactly. anymore than 10 years. You need to have a nearly up-to-date version, at least nearly, and, and everything, all the development effort and everything has to be paid for. So it works. There is a technical reasons and, and huge mega trends that push towards that all software has to be rented uh, and, and service it has to be recovering revenue. Um, but uh, you're right, of course, some customers, there are big concerns, even if they can calculate it's the same price, they, they are not used to it, and they're used to buy hardware, you buy hardware once, um, if you don't have a rust or something like that, um, but it's moving, it's moving, and with things like SAP and Microsoft now all going to full SaaS and, and becoming revenue, it gets into all the budgeting step by step, and it's a, a change that will not be yeah, and I'm be connected. You have to be connected to the internet at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah do I have to, there are licensing mechanisms for that. So we are using for licensing the Vivo or Karlsruhe. <laughs> it's in Karlsruhe. It's a provider of hardware and software dongling. Uh, and they have very, very sophisticated methods uh, also to use, do licensing through air gap systems. Yeah, also to, to work with this in a nice yeah. manner. But yeah, you have to build something, uh, quite some to make it work. Yeah, we're, we're right there, but from an from economic and budgeting point of view, I think that's an, an unstoppable trend and that's moving forward. Uh, and of course, the industry will get there over the years. Yep. Any other questions, Chris? I mean, this has been, this has been very- Yeah, a lot of notes. Thank you, Sven. It's an amazing time talking to you. Uh, yeah. You're a wealth of knowledge for sharing. You've seen a lot uh, through this industry in the last uh, 20 years, at least since you've been working on it. So, any plans really to come to the uh, to the U.S. anytime soon? Um, what post post vaccination or uh, automate 2022 at the latest? Yeah, let's see yeah. how it can yeah. be earlier. The last time I was was actually automate 2019. Yeah, uh, so yeah. Well, hopefully we'll see you before then um but it would be yeah. uh, we'll have to get a beer when we yeah. see you there looking forward to it and hoping that everything normalizes i mean the remote is is convenient but we miss something it's always something gets lost yeah, yeah. absolutely next time i'm in germany i'll give you a call yeah you're welcome to visit our our shop floor, we call it, we have quite some robots in it. <laughs> because yeah. also we do for feasibility studies for customers. So we have quite some, also a lot of URs, <laughs> quite some yeah. URs. And in our training center, also URs. So, uh, but also a few others. Uh, so I'm happy to show you. Great. We haven't let you give any kind of a plug yet, but I didn't know if there was anything you wanted to leave our listeners with um, that they should be looking out for, um, for from, from Artie Minds, anything that you, uh, anything back, you know, we please go check out their website and check out their products. They're a, a very sophisticated company, but I don't know if um, if there's anything you wanted to bring up, Sven. 
Because if you look uh, at our videos, uh, software video, or our applications on our website, YouTube channel, yeah, so uh, just uh, stop by and have a few minutes watching some, some nice applications. And yeah, so that's what I can invite you to. And uh, apart from that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to robotics. Yeah, it's, it's now moving dynamically as ever or as never before, I think. And I think there will be now a big boom for flexible automation emerging now after this, this crisis. I think there will be too. All right. Once so again, thank you, Sven. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.